0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Confident Faith, as we look to the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verses 1 to 26. So turn in your Bibles now as Dr. Newfeld gives us a message entitled, Fleeing Judgment Day.
1: The Bible uses the account of Sodom and Gomorrah as a constant metaphor for evil and for judgment. What happened to the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is a precursor to what will happen to the entire cultures of humankind. Listen to some of the ways in which the Scripture later uses the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to Isaiah's warnings to wicked Jerusalem during his day. So I'm reading Isaiah chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. Isaiah says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of your God, you people of Gomorrah. Wow! That's quite a thing to say about the leaders of Jerusalem, and that's quite a warning about what is to come. When the prophet Zephaniah was denouncing Moab and Ammon, listen to what he said, and that's recorded in Zephaniah 2 verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. And so we see when the prophets speak of complete and total judgment, the words Sodom and Gomorrah come easily onto their tongues. Jesus spoke about Sodom and Gomorrah frequently. In Matthew 10, 15, he said that if any town in Israel would not listen to him and his apostles, that it would in the end be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Both Peter and Jude think that what happened in those two cities are an illustration of the final judgment. I'm reading Jude verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so it seems to me that we really can't discuss Genesis 19 and the account of Sodom and Gomorrah with, without at the same time seeing in these two cities, while acknowledging them as real historical cities, and yet seeing them as a kind of an allegory of the great judgment to come. So I'm reading Genesis 19one to 11. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them. He rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, and brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door." And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Well, let's start with getting a description of a culture that has become irredeemably evil. I want you to notice who was involved in this act. The Bible says it came from the entire population. It wasn't the criminal element in the city. It was everyone. This was a population overwhelmingly given to sexual indulgence at every level, and anyone entering into the city better beware, this is how things are in this city. This was their cultural reality. In fact, if I were to describe this culture, and therefore describe the kind of culture that stands before the judgment of God, I'd have to describe three things. First, this culture is sex-focused. When strangers arrived, the first thing the citizens wanted was sex with them. And in this case, it was homosexual sex. You know, until very recently, the English term sodomy meant any act of anal sex and was considered to be under the condemnation of God. But there's more here than homosexuality. You see, Sodom and Gomorrah became a symbol in the Bible of a certain behavioral pattern that can develop in a culture. As we have seen in Isaiah chapter 1, Israel was compared to Sodom and Gomorrah because they did not seek justice or encourage the oppressed or defended the cause of the fatherless. Or listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, verse 14. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. So Jeremiah says that adultery, lawlessness, and blatant refusal to repent is the spirit of Sodom. But now listen to Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. I mean, that's quite a list of sins. Arrogance and a total disregard for the welfare of others. To this, Jude adds what is blatantly obvious. Jude 7, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. So how do we describe a culture that is irredeemably evil? Well, it's about sexual perversion, all right. You can't ignore that. But it's also about arrogance, lack of concern for the poor, and giving power to wicked men. It's about a lot of things. We need to say it another way. In a society that is irredeemably wicked, truth, morality, and justice are secondary to the human appetite. See, once you understand the issues in Sodom and Gomorrah as greater than simply sexual misdeeds, you can clearly see the problem. To put it another way, the great issues that ought to consume a culture are God, truth, freedom, peace, order, decency, care for the poor, forgiveness, mercy, reconciliation, humility, fidelity, and faithfulness. Instead, Sodom thrives on the human stomach, the human appetite, the human drives, the meet-my-needs syndrome. Sodom is self-absorbed. It can't get beyond itself. That's why I fear for our culture. I mean, read the papers. What do they tell you about our culture? Are we about truth? Are we about human appetites? See, the big issue in Canada today are things like abortion rights, which means I ought to be able to have sex without the worrisome child that ruins everything. And if it's not about abortion rights, it's about gay rights or freedom to smoke marijuana or safe injection sites. Yesterday, it was the right to have sex outside of marriage, when today, it's a right for people to practice sex in an increasingly sensuous and bizarre fashion. And who but knows what tomorrow may bring? Are the boundaries of sex among family members about to be challenged? Or about sex with children? Or the practice of polygamy? and with each hard-won fight to push the boundaries one step further comes the brazen challenge that unless we accept and acquiesce, we are to be opposed as haters of others. See, the problem with the human appetite is that it is impossible to satisfy it. The problem with the human appetite is that when the appetite becomes the focus or the centerpiece of our attention, rather than righteousness and mercy and truth, well, then we're going to find that the appetite will expand to ever-increasing desires. Indeed, the appetite will deceive us so that the appetite and only the appetite is what ultimately defines us. And I fear that a society bent on satisfying its hunger will eventually feed on itself. See, what happens to a society when the human appetite reigns supreme? The Bible tells us that what happens is arrogance, complacency, and a lack of compassion, and these become the new societal norms. It's in this regard that I believe there's a genuine struggle going on in our culture. See, on the one hand, we argue for medical care for everyone, but we also argue for the right to die. We argue for care for the sick, yet we pay a hockey player or an entertainer, someone who makes us laugh and who makes us lust many times more than a physician or a teacher or a builder or a police officer or a teacher of the Word of God. See, we argue for the rights of children and are deeply concerned for the welfare of children, but we're having fewer children than ever before because, well, they bother us. We talk about giving every home the right to make a decent income, and yet we see divorce and the total destruction of the home at the same time. I see a great struggle for values in our culture. Which will win? The values of compassion or the values of arrogance and the human appetite? Or will there be a revival?
0: 60 years of Bible teaching ministry in Canada is what we're celebrating in 2018. For that reason, we're launching a number of special events and activities throughout the year to celebrate God's faithfulness. We begin this month by airing a new series featuring both founder, Theodore Epp, and Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld. It's a special series for a number of reasons. First, the consistency of the messages from both men hold the same high standard of teaching you've become confident in. And secondly, there's a wonderful solidarity of mission and passion for the scriptures, the legacy, and vision for the future. As a special gift to you, our friends and supporters, we wanna offer this 60th anniversary five-message series on CD as a free gift. All you need to do is contact us today and ask. And to receive more information or support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Peter and 2 Peter tells us that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Living in the city of Sodom day after day was tormenting his righteous soul. No doubt, he tried to make a difference, but he failed. I tried to point out yesterday that Lot was more compromised than he knew. See, on the one hand, he takes the men into his home, showing care and hospitality. But on the other hand, he offers the men of Sodom his own daughters, being ready to condemn them to death in some misplaced attempt to care for his own guests. You can tell how compromised Lot has become. And that's where the angels step in. They simply rescue Lot, not just from the men, but also from himself. The angels strike the men with blindness, and the Hebrew word used here means a temporary blindness. They're blinded because of a brilliant light. And immediately as the men of Sodom become blind, Lot begins to see. These are angels sent from God. And they are here to tell him that Sodom, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain are all condemned. And so what follows then is a description of what happens when judgment comes to a city. I'm reading Genesis 19, 12 to 16. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, "'Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city.' But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, "'Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city.' But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city." Let me emphasize again that the condemned cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are an illustration of judgment that will come upon the world. Here now are three things that happen when judgment comes. The first thing is that God warns the righteous to flee. I want you to notice how gracious that is. Lot is not just told to flee. So is his wife and his two daughters, the two men betrothed to be married to them, and then anyone else that's connected to them. Indeed, Lot is given a chance not now to change his culture, but to use all the influence he has had over the years to save anyone he can. And sadly, he has so little influence. But here's where the problems compound. We begin to see the real problems. I wonder if you've noticed something in this text. You'll notice that Lot's son-in-laws are actually not married to his daughters. They're merely betrothed or they're engaged. And you'll also remember that Lot's daughters are in fact virgins. Clearly, Lot's family does have a very different standard from their culture. But now comes the sad part. Lot doesn't want to go. Neither does his family. They may decry Sodom, but they love Sodom. Some of you remember the three-part film series, The Lord of the Rings. The final of the three is called The Return of the King. And near the end of the movie, Frodo Baggins stands over an abyss in the Mountain of Doom, and he's ready to throw the evil ring into the lava flow that will finally and ultimately destroy evil. He has sacrificed more than can be described to get to this point. But now he hesitates. He finds he can't do it. Later, as Gollum falls into the abyss, falling to his death, to hell itself, he simply can't take his eyes off the ring that he's holding in his hands. It's not his death that terrifies him. It's the pleasure of ultimate evil that enthralls his soul. And then as seen near to the end of the movie as Bilbo, the old hobbit, who has once had the ring years ago, is talking to his nephew Frodo. Bilbo asks about the ring. Frodo says he lost it, and Bilbo says, I would so much like to have held it one more time. Let me say something about evil. It's so pleasurable, so soul-entangling... So life ensnaring that it's impossible outside of the power of Jesus Christ himself to get loose. Sometimes you just have to renounce your attachment to this world and to evil in the name of Jesus. You have to flee evil now. Make that your resolution. I'll only be attached to Christ. I will flee Sodom. Now to verses 17 to 26. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved." And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. I find this fascinating. Lot is essentially rescued from himself. He doesn't want to go. He's forced out of the city. He doesn't want to go to the mountains, so the angels actually give him a concession. He can stay in a small city of Zoar, and they will spare that city for his sake but his sons-in-law don't go at all. His wife simply turns back, even in the burning and in the judgment, like Gollum falling into the abyss, she can't take her eyes off of Sodom. Sodom lives in her soul, and she will go down with it. You know, sometimes we become so compromised that, and may I say this most gently, sometimes we become so compromised that we're not aware of how this has affected everyone around us. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, and then the next verse adds, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And that's to say, we may stay in the faith, but everything else around us burns. Our influence over others is now gone. Having a love-hate relationship with Sodom is an evil thing. Or listen to Jesus' words recorded in Luke 17, verses 29 to 32. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. And then, of course, Jesus went on to say that the one who seeks to save his or her own life in this world will lose it. You're either willing to abandon this earth and culture at a moment's notice, or you suffer the same as Lot's wife. Each of us are going to have to decide what is it that we want, this world or the one to come. You know, I once talked to a man who had been, when he was a boy, in, in what was then called Die Hitlerjugend, or Hitler's youth. Hitler had wanted the disciple, the next generation of, of Germany's children, and so, kind of like a Boy Scout program, German children were registered in this civic program. Well, this man told me that on one occasion he had actually met and shaken the hand of the Führer. In his words, the pleasure from that handshake was so great that had he not, as an adult, renounced that pleasure in the name of Jesus, he said that one handshake would have become the dominant identifier of my life. Some of us need to renounce our handshake with this doomed world. And instead of nurturing a secret love for that which is passing away, we renounce all that is not of eternal value. Instead of loving this world, might I suggest that you replace it with three things. First, replace the love of this world with a love for this world. That is, instead of hiding a pleasure of this world in our hearts, may our hearts rather be overcome with a compassion for the lost in this world. Second, instead of allowing yourself to become the prey of the pleasures of this world, begin rather to pray for this world and the people in it, so that the maximum might know Christ and His righteousness. And third, instead of feeding on the pleasures of this world, become lavish in your giving for extending the kingdom of God. Lot's life is both an example of a man who remained committed to the Lord, but also an example of a man who played at the edges of a condemned culture and in so doing lost his family and his ability to speak into that culture and save as many as possible. May his example be deeply taken to heart and may we say, O Lord, so turn my heart to love you above all things, that in so doing, I may use the influence that you have given me to touch as many lives as possible for your glory and for the glory of the kingdom to come. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: John, thanks for your message today. It makes me wonder a little bit because, you know, it's it's difficult in this day and age. We, we tend to have our feet in both worlds. And the seduction of this world is so strong. How do we overcome that? How do do we make our commitment to the place we ought to be?
1: Yeah, I mean, we need to remember this is still my father's world and he still rules over this world. And so we want to make sure that we do have a love for the things that God loves. But at the same time, we, we get entangled because we're ensnared with the things that are in direct opposition to God and his word. So it seems to me, Ben, that what we need to do more than anything else is that we need to fight with all of our hearts for the joy of knowing the Lord. I mean, we need to say, Lord, give me no greater joy than the joy of seeing you face to face. And may my heart be so turned to that, it will seem as if nothing if I give up
0: everything in this world. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for more of this series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. the legalization of marijuana. Are you ready, prepared? Do you understand the impact on you, your community, young people? What is a trustworthy biblical perspective and what's the impact physically, spiritually, socially? In Doubt and In Doubt Live is about connecting today's issues of faith and life with a biblical perspective. Join In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Dr. Lucinda Scott, and Mark Ward, author of Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture live February 22nd at the Clover Theatre in Cloverdale, British Columbia. It's a free event for young adults, so arrive early. Doors open at 6.30, event begins at 7pm. And if you can't make it, no worries. The event is being broadcast live on Facebook and you can submit your questions during the Q&A segment. So for all the info you need, head to indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.